Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this conversation, we're talking to Frances Gregory Roberts. I have been in awe of Frances since I saw her present at a conference in Kentucky back in February about her research in Louisiana. She's currently a PhD candidate of Society and Environment at University of California, Berkeley. She is the quintessential interdisciplinarian, and that's why I wanted to have her on the podcast because that is my background as well. And what's really amazing about Frances is that she embeds her identity, her interdisciplinary identity of being Black, Indigenous, an eco-womanist, ethnographer, and a climate justice advocate into her research. And we talk about this in depth. Using her interdisciplinary expertise, Frances works in Louisiana with Black and Indigenous women from frontline communities fighting the siting of industrial facilities. We talk about how she has immersed herself into the community that she works in and some of the challenges that come with that. We also talk about the ethics within which she operates to gather data for her research through her interviews with the women in the frontline communities and how she goes about gathering data with the least amount of impact on these communities. So Frances has achieved so much in her lifetime and we talk quite a little bit about this and it's truly inspiring for me how she has worked in different spaces in the environmental field and what she's been able to achieve in those spaces. At the same time, though, she shares that her success does unfortunately come with deep pain from micro and macro aggressions, severe imposter syndrome, embarrassment and anxiety. And not many women and women of color will readily admit this because it makes us vulnerable in a sometimes unforgiving world. And I truly appreciate Frances sharing this vulnerable side with us because it helps the rest of us who have experienced the same not feel like we're alone. So this part of the conversation was quite therapeutic for me. And I'll tell you, I felt really rejuvenated after the conversation. And I hope you do too. All right. So usually what I do is I try to start as much as possible from the beginning by having our guests tell us about their experiences of growing up in terms of how that shaped their interest in the natural environment. So if you share that with us. Yeah, of course. So I was born in Newark, New Jersey, or Essex County, and I grew up in rural North Carolina in Duplin County, where there's a lot of chicken and hog farms, and also in the D.C. area, Arlington, Virginia, which is very urban. So I would say like constantly traveling between those different regions of the United States really impacted how I thought about geographies and also migration. I was raised, for the most part, in cities. My mother and my grandparents and great-grandparents, they worked the land as field hands in North Carolina and Georgia. In the cities, they often had gardens. So I think that always 
I never felt disconnected from the land, even if I spent most of my time in the city, had houseplants even. (laughs) Also, my mother was very eco-friendly. She was a very natural person. She wanted to become an herbalist or naturopath doctor. So nutrition was always really important. And she was a vegan when she was pregnant with me when I was born. So I always grew up in a household that thought about these different environmental issues, I would say critically. And also I would say I grew up in a feminist household because my mother often went against the grain and hung out in food co-ops and some early Black feminist groups in the D.C. area. So when she went to college at Georgetown. So yeah, I would say all of that shaped my love of environment and my love for nature. Mm, It seems like quite a diverse experiences from city to, but also having that kind of influence within your household from your mother. I think that's rare. Especially for like, I think our generation. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, my mom was definitely, I would almost say at this point, I wouldn't have said it growing up, but I would say she almost raised me to have like an indigenous mindset Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to live more in harmony with the earth and respecting your ancestors, things of that nature. So yeah, I grew up without Mm -hmm. a microwave. Like, I mean, my mom was very alternative, (laughs) put it that way. That's cool. And so what are some of the practices, whether they're just spiritual or just material that you have carried on with you even after you've moved out of the house? Or I should say into the real world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I would say a love of community and a love of education and seeing education as activism. So my mother was a math teacher and She also, as a single mom, was studying biochemistry without childcare, you know, so I would go with her to her classes at Fayetteville State University in North Carolina. And so I think for me, always at a young age, I knew education was important for liberation and freedom and also that we had to advocate because oftentimes we weren't accepted into certain spaces or we were rejected. I had so many situations of that happen. And then love of community. So my mom was always like tutoring the neighborhood kids, taking the neighborhood kids even to like the roller skating rink or putting me and my sibling, uh, my brother and other, actually the neighborhood kids and mentoring programs. She would like drive everyone to like these mentoring programs. Like I always knew mentorship was important. I always knew education was important. I always knew respect for elders. We would always drive to visit my great aunts and great uncles, spend time in New Jersey for holidays. So we were always, we always saw ourselves as connected, never yeah. disconnected. Oh, that sounds like such a lovely upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I'm romanticizing it a little bit, but yeah. No, but when you're a kid, you know, and that feeling <laughs> yeah. carries with you. Yeah. That's so nice. Oh. <laughs> yeah, definitely important. And so that influenced you or... I guess, help led you to a path in the environmental profession. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of carved your path through and now you're pursuing your PhD. I know it's many years of experience and thought processes, but if there were like key moments in your life where you were like, all right, I've decided that I'm going to move in this particular direction. If you could share some of those experiences with us. 
Yeah, of course. So I'm going to try to summarize. <laughs> Basically, so, you know, like I said, my mom was a teacher, so good grades were important. So mm-hmm. I was a high achieving student in high school and I had so many interests. And I also did a lot of service. My mother always had me like volunteering in the library or I mean, volunteering everywhere. And so when I finally decided to attend Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, I was accepted into a summer program before my freshman year even started. And it was called YSTEM, Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And so when I arrived there, they actually had me as an environmental engineer. And I decided I wanted to do environmental science and studies because I, at the time, thought environmental science was tree hugging. (laughs) It's not. No. (laughs) It's really a pre-med track at Spelman as part of their so ah. biology program. Yeah, so it was it was definitely not tree hugging. And but I think I was in a cohort of really brilliant, motivated black women. And I was like, okay, I can do this. And I felt like I had a support system. So I was like, all right, let me do environmental um science and studies. Over time though, I realized that since I'm such an interdisciplinary thinker, that the course curriculum at Spelman at the time did not meet my needs because I also loved culture and the social sciences and the humanities. I had taken a anthropology course in high school through the IB or International Baccalaureate program. So make a long story short, I actually did five years of undergrad. And so I did four years of environmental science where I even studied abroad in South Africa and took courses in hydrology and agrometeorology. Cool. Yeah. And then I did two years of sociology and anthropology, and I graduated with a socio-anthro degree. So that set me on my path. And I did many mentorship programs. I did the SOARS program, which is Significant Opportunities in Atmospheric Research and Science. I did MSPhDs, which was Minority Striving Pursuing Higher Degrees of Success in Earth Sciences. I did food literacy. I went to the world's largest food conference, Slow Food, with folks from Spelman. So yeah, I was was very interdisciplinary and I loved anything that had to do with the environment and looking at the environment from multiple perspectives and using multiple methods. And through the SOARS internship, I spent a summer, I should say, in Louisiana and I learned about indigenous climate justice issues, ethnobotany, Even I did atmospheric modeling through that internship. And so that's when I knew that I really wanted a career in spreading environmental awareness as an environmental educator Mm -hmm. and also bringing about a climate just future so that there's an earth for current and future generations. Right. It seems like you've had various experiences, not only just in the sciences, but also in anthropology. And then the mentorship programs were also seem to have a significant impact in helping you kind of grow your expertise in various subject areas. Yeah, for sure. And I would only add that when I did the internship in Louisiana and I did an internship in community geography at Georgia State, I was working with community-based researchers and they really opened up my mind or introduced me, I should say, to participatory action research. And also even feminist methods. And that was really important to me because I am a feminist. Like I dealt with a lot of economic instability and even sexual violence as a child because of like the capitalist patriarchal 
system that we live under. So for me, as today, I've been able to merge all my interests in reproductive justice, women's rights, feminism, environment, Black liberation, indigenous sovereignty together. Yeah. So those are a lot of identities that you, I don't want to say identities that you identify with. That's not very (laughs) descriptive. But those are a lot of identities that you've adopted, but those are also a reflection of your experiences in the real world. And so when you identify yourself as a Black feminist, eco-womanist, ethnographer for climate justice. What exactly does that mean? And how are you using that to influence your current PhD research? Right. So thanks for that question. An eco-womanist is a feminist environmentalist. And really, there's a lineage of different scholars and activists such as Dr. Melanie Harris, even Alice Walker, the great writer, who've contributed to the development of this particular identity. But for me, it means that I believe that the folk that are the most impacted by disaster and inequality should be at the forefront of solution making. It means that I want to center Black and Indigenous women of color's expertise when it comes to, for example, the climate crisis. And oftentimes our voices are excluded from the canons because I guess our work, maybe our work isn't legible, but also just a history of erasure, exclusion. People don't, there's epistemic injustice or the idea that we don't hold expertise or knowledge on particular topics because oftentimes the environment is seen as something that belongs to the founding fathers of white environmentalism who were doing preservation and conservation. They were important in their own right, but they weren't the first. People of color have always thought about the environment, been involved in the environment, but due to different types of violences, particularly colonization, we've been stripped of our voices. So it's like speaking truth to power and saying that I'm going to take an intersectional lens and I'm not going to choose. Like I'm going to bring my, the fullness of my identity into the work that I do. Mm-hmm. How do we undo some of those colonial mindsets, which are quite deeply seated into our structures and also within environmental movements and even in environmental research? So decolonization is a process. There's so many scholars, so many organizers, activists who have written about this. I think for me, and I don't think it's a one size fit for all, I would say for me, it's about centering subjective knowledge. I think oftentimes as scientists, we're taught the scientific method to be objective, to not have emotions, to not be involved. For me, that's so violent. That's such a colonial mindset. It's a Eurocentric mindset. It's also a masculinist or androcentric mindset. In actuality, we need science for liberation, science for the people, science for tomorrow, which means that we have to bring in our entire identity. We don't need to be afraid of that or feel like we need to compartmentalize ourselves, break ourselves into pieces. And then we have to call on ancestral knowledge. A lot of indigenous folk talk about traditional ecological knowledge. And so understanding that these hierarchies of knowledge and science were created, they were power plays for particular purposes, and that 
actually there's other ways, worldviews, mindsets of looking at the world and solving problems. We have indigenous folk who are saying like we should be planning for seven generations. Most of the folk who are city planners, engineers are not always trained in environmental engineering. And they're definitely not planning for seven generations because they would use completely different materials. Like we would have permeable pavement everywhere. (laughs) You know, like we would learn to live with water as opposed to trying to fight it and damming rivers and destroying cultural sites. Like there's just so many things we would do differently if we called upon our ancestral knowledge, thought about future generations, and try to live in harmony with emerging technologies and also traditional ways of living. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to do some of that right now in Louisiana. You're working with Black and Indigenous women who are impacted by harmful industrial activities associated with the petroleum industries. Tell us a little bit about how you are incorporating some of the indigenous knowledge into working with these particular women and how you're hoping that might... Okay, let me not ask you too many questions. Let's just start with basically how you're working with the indigenous women to better understand or how we can integrate indigenous knowledge into better environmental management practices. Yeah. So I would say that once again, I have to acknowledge my mentor. So there's so many indigenous women here in Louisiana, also Black women working in green infrastructure, community researchers with the Lowlander Center, community geographers that I even met in Atlanta who have been theorizing and writing about this work and working collaboratively, for example, to integrate traditional ecological knowledge with GIS to figure out where we should put particular types of infrastructure. To simplify, we can talk about like the need for diversions in Louisiana. So like, where should we put these river diversions, like working with local people and local knowledges and not just relying upon often faulty engineering logic? I would say also, I try to focus on storytelling as an anthropologist. And as a climate communicator, I would say I try to focus on amplifying the message. And so through my work, I've interviewed dozens of women of color and I'm writing up their stories. I'm sharing what they've shared with me, with news outlets, also with environmental organizations to ensure that their solutions for the climate crisis are considered. And also in the future, I hope to create mentorship programs So there's more women of color involved in the international climate, United Nations climate negotiations. I went to COP most recently, well, for the first time in December of 2019. And there was definitely like an indigenous delegation and also delegation from the Gulf South. But there's so many women I've interviewed who like know nothing about this space. And they have so many like practical ideas, but they don't even know like where the channels are for them to participate. And so unfortunately, credentials matter. So for me, it's also about professionalization. Like how can I share knowledge and also help mentor and professionalize so that I don't have to speak for these women, they can speak for themselves. And they already are speaking for themselves, but in certain spaces, like there's just still a need for greater representation. All right. 
you work with the Black and the Indigenous women and you're helping gather their knowledge and you're also at the same time helping build their capacity in their ability to express in an effective manner what they believe they should see changed in their community. Do you have an opportunity to create an avenue for them to work with like city officials where they can channel that information and try and create some sort of change? I would say I'm working collaboratively with Black and Indigenous leaders who are already doing the work. So we can talk about like Dr. Beverly Wright with the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. She's engaging city leaders. Her organization just worked with the city of New Orleans. They came out with a climate equity report. Also, Colette Pichon Battle. So I would say I'm supporting their efforts and lending my expertise. So I worked as the project manager for the Gulf Equity Water Corps project under Dr. Wright in the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. And then I'm spreading awareness of that work. As far as like some of the indigenous women, I'm also, yeah, I would just say like I'm supporting their efforts because I think I'm still trying to push back at this idea that like people don't know how to speak for themselves. They really do. It's just that they don't always have the resources or the connections to networks. And since I'm not from Louisiana, although I do love and care about Louisiana, I have connections to networks right? Am- amplify the message. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I should also just point out, so recently New Orleans participated in the C40 Women for Climate Mentorship Program. And so a lot of the women who are part of that program, I've interviewed and I've been able to support them, even if it's like unofficially through like advice as they like work with different entities, including the city or natural resource managers to better their communities. There's a lot going on, I would say, at multiple levels. Yeah. One thing that I learned in grad school when we were doing courses on international development a lot of the focus is on community-based conservation practices, for example. And one thing that really stuck with me is that the local communities know what they need. They need the help or resources and tools to help them get what they need. And that's kind of the role that I see you playing is they know what they need to get done and they have the knowledge. They just need the connections, for example, to get in front of the person who makes those decisions or even help get them to those platforms where they can actually amplify their voices. Yeah, that's definitely like like my goal in the future, like with mentoring youth. So I taught high school for a year and so definitely was engaging in some of that work. And also I would say as a feminist, a part of the work that I do is deeply focused on relationship building because oftentimes A lot of the women I work with, they don't consider themselves, or I interview, I should say, they don't consider themselves to be activists. Sometimes they consider themselves to be advocates or community organizers. But a lot of times they're just like, I'm just a mother or I'm just a concerned citizen who's doing good work. And so that's amazing. At the same time, when we're talking about getting into positions of power, labels do matter. And so I'm hoping that my work and my relationship building can assist with women understanding how talented they are and how multifaceted they are so that they can apply for grants from maybe organizations they would have never traditionally considered or they can 
see themselves as an educator and, you know, work with certain groups because sometimes people self-select out just because they feel uncomfortable with particular labels that they don't associate with themselves, even though from the outside world, they would associate them with those particular labels. Right. So when you interview these Black and Indigenous women, what's the nature of the questions? And how do you conduct your interviews in a way that it's not extractive? Yeah. So I would say all interviews are extractive. So I don't think True. <laughs> I don't think I can escape that. I would love to. I'm just the non-extractive researcher. <laughs> Interviewer. Yeah. At the same time, I think that I try to minimize extraction as much as possible. So like I offer to pay my research participants because I think their time is valuable and their knowledge is valuable. And oftentimes we don't we do a lot of free labor as women. And so um, and people of color, not even just women. And so like I try to donate as much as my research budget allows, like a small amount for each interview. And if they don't want to take it, which is often the case, like I'm like, well, let me donate this to a cause or an organization you support. So they understand that like I'm trying to contribute to their efforts. Also, similar to this interview, I try to make my interviews as conversational as possible because I think Unless like you're a woman who's trained to be in like some of these professional policy or academics or scientific spaces, which a lot of women of color are like, I don't, we are in these spaces, but for other grassroots women, it's a little intimidating, you know, but conversation is more accessible. And so I try to do that. Also, like since my interviews are conversational, it flows, you know, I'm not stuck to this rigid interview guide. That's not important. It's it's about the flow right. and anticipating answers and even like using different language depending on who you're talking to to meet right. where they are. Because mm-hmm. people have different education levels, um, emotional like there's certain questions I might not ask someone if someone's getting super emotional. Right. I try to be a good human being as much as possible when I'm doing my research and try to give back as much as possible. Like I've had folk that I've interviewed ask me to facilitate conversations or volunteer in a particular project. It's about relationships. So the relationships don't end with the interview or they don't have to end with the research process. Right. Which I think has been quite typical in many cases where it's just, like you said, a specific set of questions that you ask and after the interview is done kind of the relationship or that connection with that person is just abruptly severed (laughs) and asking the same questions to each person who's being interviewed serves a benefit in terms of like your data points but at the same time when you are working with sensitive cases where each individual has a different experience and a different way that they would like to be communicated with, I think, then a more rigid interviewing structure just doesn't serve your purpose at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just really try to meet people where they are. It's really important. And even, I wouldn't say every person, but like a lot of the folks that I interview, I'm friends with them on social media, which also brings an accountability because they can hit me up whenever they want and check in and see how the research process is going. I have to do like the 
peer-reviewed journal articles and the dissertation writing and all of that, but I also do like magazine articles and just articles that are free and accessible to community members so that they can, and I share it with them, even when I'm terrified sometimes, so they can validate what I'm saying, but also they can challenge what I'm saying. They can provide feedback. So that accountability is important as well. I can imagine it's quite a scary process when you submit your findings (laughs) and they're like, that's not what I said. And you're like, oh, but that's what I heard, I think. Right. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But but I mean, I'm definitely anticipating because everyone has a different perspective and I do my best to try to generalize and do justice to their work. Yeah. And even I would say at the end of my research project, although it's going to take a long time, I hope to share the transcripts of their interviews back with the folk that I interviewed, because oftentimes documentary filmmakers, researchers come in and extract all of this knowledge and they never hear from them again. They're like, I heard they were making a documentary, but I don't know what happened to it. So I'm like, you can Google me like this is I'm on social media. When I'm done with my research, here's a copy of your transcript. So you can do what you want to do because it's their intellectual property. They're sharing it with me. And so, yeah, it's important. That's awesome. And I think it's a lot of work, but at the end of the day, you have to really be respectful to the community that has welcomed you. And kind of the process that you were explaining right now sounds very similar to the conversation that we had with Ingrid Waldron or Dr. Ingrid Waldron, who wrote a book, There's Something in the Water, and she worked with a number of Black and Indigenous communities in Nova Scotia to investigate the impact of environmental injustices on the health of those communities. And so she talked a lot about what it means to be a responsible researcher and to actually embed yourself to a certain extent as a part of the community, because that's, I mean, truly like bring your most genuine self to the table because a lot of the people within the Nova Scotian community, especially the Black and Indigenous communities, have faced the same experiences that you were explaining of where other researchers, documentarists, or documentary filmmakers come in, extract the information, and then are just disappear. And they're kind of like experiencing, what's that, interviewing fatigue? No. Research fatigue. Yeah, research fatigue. I was like, not interviewing fatigue. (laughs) Same difference. (laughs) (laughs) Same difference. I can only imagine how it feels to have some outsider come in and take this information from me and never do anything about it or even just help me do something with that information to elevate my condition or my situation. Yeah, I agree completely with what they said. I think at the end of the day, I understand that like research is a process. It's also, how do I say this? My goal is to actually change the material conditions of people's lives. And that is not done overnight. Systems change does not happen in a day or a year or during the course of a research project. So I understand that this research is just helping me get into a position of power so that I can actually hopefully contribute to changing the material conditions of people's lives, which is why I'm more and more interested in policy. And I do justice to the research endeavor, but I also know that outside of being a researcher, I am an 
activist and I want to change the material conditions of people's lives. So I always keep that in mind. And if I know what my purpose is, I think everything else makes sense. I know what I should and shouldn't do. And if I make a mistake, I own up to it. Yeah. That's mighty big of you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I try. I'm definitely not perfect. You know, I definitely like, I mean, like I said, I have to respect people. You know, sometimes there's people who I really want to interview and it, I have to build relationships with them for a few years before they get comfortable enough or there's enough trust for them to like, let me interview them or other people who just refuse to let me interview them. And I have to use secondary sources like social media or interviews they've done with other people, you know, Mm -hmm. I have to respect people at the end of the day. Right. And I think that's really what brings more credibility to you as a researcher at the end of the day. Yeah, it is hard because we do fetishize the cleanliness of our data. There's definitely pressure there. But I mean, life is not clean. Life is messy. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. So, you know, one thing that you mentioned earlier on is that you are not from Louisiana. So what drew you to Louisiana to do your research there? Right. So I would say it goes back to that internship I did when I was a protege for the Significant Opportunities in Atmospheric Research and Science Program. They sent us to Louisiana to do community-based research with Indigenous communities. And that transformed my life when I learned about participatory action research. And I would say that I probably dealt with some vicarious sex trauma because I'm a caring person. So like hearing everyone's stories, like how Louisiana loses a football sized field of land every 30 to 60 minutes and meeting people who like at times had so little, but yet were doing so much. I was like, wow, I need to, I need to step it up. They're doing this. I can do what I can do. And so I knew I wanted to return to Louisiana. And at first I thought that I wanted to be in a botanist and do a research project around ethnobotany because I've always had a love for food justice. Over time, I realized I'm a better ethnographer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So my project evolved to focus on how women of color navigate contradictory relationships with energy and petrochemical industries, resist environmental racism, and devise solutions for climate, energy, and environmental justice. And that was, once again, from situating my situated knowledge and refusing to forget about the people I had met that one summer back in 20, what was it? 2011, I want to say. Like for me, relationships are important. I'm not going to forget you. Even if I, if I leave for a season, I'm going to return. And that's how I was raised by my mother. Like we lived in multiple cities, but we always returned. We always kept up those relationships. That's interesting because as you were talking about how relationships are very important to you, it just reminded me of what you did say about how your mother raised you and your brother. And I was just like, I was thinking to myself, it's kind of like, a continuation or a circle circling back. And mm-hmm. I don't know, there's something about that connection where it's like, aha, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you peeped it because I just <laughs> thought of it when I was talking. I actually was like, yeah, that's what it's about. I mean, I would say Dr. Melanie Harris, who like is, like I said, one of my sheroes when it comes to eco-womanism, she talks about eco-womanism as method as a spiral. Mm. It's not linear, it's a spiral. So yes, we are constantly circling back. It's iterative. It's about problem solving. And that's the approach I take to even 
environmental problem solving and natural resource management. It's a spiral. Yeah. I think I've been doing a little bit of more introspection over the past year or two and trying to think about how my upbringing has influenced who I am today. And I feel like that is a reflection of the spiral that you just talked about. Yeah. We always go back to kind of like where we came from. (laughs) Yes, we really do. I mean, even now, like doing the work, I've talked to people and they're like, oh, where are you from? And then I tell them about how many of the communities I'm from deal with environmental justice issues. So then that's inspired me to think about, oh, in the future, maybe I should literally go back to some of these communities my ancestors are from and like do work there. It's complicated because home is a place of refuge, but sometimes it can also be a place of violence. Like right now, I've had three generations of my family wiped out by COVID-19 in New Jersey. So like... I don't feel safe going back to New Jersey right now. <laughs> yeah. So sorry for your loss. And yeah. since we're talking, let me know if you're comfortable actually talking about COVID-19. And I respect that you've lost family members. But based on your perspective as an eco-womanist, feminist, ethnographer, what is your perspective about how COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting Black and brown communities? Yeah, no, I thank you for saying that. I don't mind talking about it. Well, what's been interesting is that it was the shock of it where we're all like just trying to understand what's going on. And you see the reports about how like Italy was disproportionately impacted. And that really struck me. I was like, why is Italy disproportionately impacted? And I had a professor hit me up on Facebook, Spelman professor, and she was saying, hey, I want to share some environmental articles that deal with COVID-19, like, do you have any suggestions? I was like, you know, I've been so stuck in my grief. I haven't really done that work. So I started doing Google searches and talking to other activists. And then I realized there was this connection between COVID-19 and uh, obviously underlying health conditions, but also zip codes and air pollution. And Italy has terrible air pollution, which is one of the reasons why it's such a hot spot. Here in Louisiana, we're a hot spot for the disease because of the air pollution from all the petrochemical industries, chemical industries, oil and gas, like folk and cancer alley, which is between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Oh, it's longer than that, but they're dying. And there's unequal access to health care. We see that in New York, where in the Bronx and Brooklyn, like areas that like historically have been home to many people of color, the rates of mortality is higher. Same thing in where my family's from. They had many underlying health conditions. So if anything, ironically enough, I feel like this is like making people understand that people are differentially impacted by disaster. And that's what we've been saying, screaming at the top of our lungs about climate change, that everyone's not impacted the same, that like underlying vulnerabilities, whether it's underlying health conditions or your zip code or your, your exposure to pollution, or access to economic resources impacts who's able to survive, who's able to bounce back, and how quickly you're able to bounce back. So it's it's the same thing. Yeah. A part of me is, and I haven't quite fully kind of formulated it in my mind, but I'm just going to kind of spew it right now, is now that we're seeing the disproportionality of the pandemic, how can we create policies that 
prevent this from happening the next time around? That's such a big question. I don't know. Part of me feels like I don't know if we can prevent. I feel like it's already in motion. It's already in motion. However, I do think that we can minimize suffering. Like, obviously, like I'm a part of like the feminist agenda for a Green New Deal. And we're thinking about how do we center the most vulnerable people when we plan for our green, sustainable cities? How do we ensure that just transition for workers in oil and gas or folk in the service industry? Because like here in Louisiana and New Orleans, so many people, if they didn't work for oil and gas, which oil prices have plummeted, they worked in restaurants. Those are all closed down. So what, what do people do? Yeah. Just transition. So I do think that we can plan better. There was an article recently that was circulating about, I think it was Hawaii who had a feminist recovery plan. Mm. There's people who are thinking about how do we have a basic income for all? How do we make sure that there's healthcare, reproductive services, that we're centering marginalized groups, even LGBTQ communities and their needs? Like The solutions are out there. People are formulating the policies, but you wouldn't see it if you look on the mainstream news. You don't see it oftentimes when you look at the platforms of our major political candidates. The folk who have more innovative ideas aren't getting elected, haven't been elected thus far. So I would say we need new leaders. I was at the grocery store, like, I don't know, maybe it was a month ago at this point. And there was like this older, (laughs) this older black lady, like she looks like one of my aunts. And she just, I was like, how are you doing? Because I like to check in with people. And she was like, she went off and she was like, we don't have any leaders. We don't have any leaders. We haven't had leaders for so long. And then she said, well, maybe we're the leaders. And I think that's so true. Like we really do need a new type of leadership. So many of the folk that I've interviewed for my research project identifies independence. People are dissatisfied, at least in the United States, with our two-party system. Really? Gosh, when I first learned about it, I was like, which country has just two parties? Because I grew up in Kenya and we have (laughs) multiple parties and the political history that I learned about and political systems, most are multi-party. And it's so funny because multi-party systems have been imposed upon, especially African nations, by Western nations, Mm. especially the U.S. government. (laughs) Meanwhile, you see, we just have two parties. I think it's so strange (laughs) and myopic, Mm -hmm. you know, we're limited to the ideologies of this two group of people when we're far more than that in this country. But hopefully with your interest in policy, you might just choose to be one of our leaders one day. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny when I was in like middle school, I think a principal or vice principal was like, you know, one day you could be president or something. And I was like, not I, I'm really not interested, but I am interested in working in policy because I hate it because I'm a, I feel like I try to be very straightforward and direct and truthful. And I think that policy is about negotiation and backdoor or politics, I should say. So that's a very scary thing. But I think that's what I hear from all the women I interview. They're like, there's folk like Colette Pichon Battle, who runs the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. Like, she's a lawyer, like, all about policy, her passion. Other women we're, are getting into policy and politics by default, not because that's how they envision themselves, but they're just tired. And the prophetic words of Fannie Lou Hamer who's a food civil rights, food justice activist, they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. 
I think that's where we're at in the United States, but also as a global community. That's why all the youth are engaging in activism. That's why so many folk are just being unapologetic because look at everything is falling apart. It really (laughs) is. (laughs) It's so scary. I know it is scary. It's so scary. And I think for me, it goes back to my role as an environmental educator. Like I want to spread awareness. I want to communicate alternative possibilities that will really sit that we need in order to survive the apocalypse that keeps occurring. This isn't the first one. And that means I also have to do my part to like educate, to learn as much as possible, to grow as much as possible, to evolve as much as possible, and also to fortify my nerves as much as possible because we're not traditionally schooled on how to deal with uncertainty. Like you can talk about like Octavia, the writer Octavia Butler talking about how only thing constant in life is change or God is change. But like people aren't good with change and they're resistant from a behavioral perspective. So like I have to fortify my nerves. I have to educate folk and equip them with the tools to improvise, to be adaptable. Yeah. Since we're talking about policy and how you might find yourself working more in that space, I'm curious to know if you can share with us What have you found so far in your interviews with the ladies that you've worked with? And how do you think you can use that information to bring about some impactful policy change? Right. So my data analysis is ongoing, but I can say that what's really stuck out to me is there's like the women who like involved in policy already, who are like policy wants. And then there's the other women who literally are like, I don't even know what the word policy means. And I feel like I used to fall into that category. And so for me, it goes back to mentorship programs and the need to demystify what is policy, how you can get involved and how the term activist isn't a dirty word. I just think that people have these stereotypes about who is involved in policy. Also, I would say like, meeting people where they are, like there's so much technical jargon and there's this pressure to professionalize. Well, what does that mean for a mother who has so many responsibilities or an elder who maybe didn't go to college and feels uncomfortable in those spaces? I just think that we have to like make policy more accessible to everyday grassroots people as well as create opportunities for advancement for the women who like already embody all of those professional characteristics. But for a lot of grassroots people, that's, it's uncomfortable. They're not made to feel comfortable. No one tries to break it down, but they're interested. That's part of my role is to break it down and say, oh, you care about this? Well, that means you care about policy. You know, you care about street flooding? Well, there's policies around like permeable pavement. So it's like, oh, okay. And then also there's like folk who are already doing the work. So like partnering with them and learning from them so that there can be best practices and just models to draw upon. Like you don't have to always reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also also understand that everyone who cares about environment or environmental decision making doesn't have to like be involved in policy. There's many different ways to get involved. And so I think that's, really important. Like I think traditionally we exclude the artists 
we exclude a lot of folk in the humanities or storytellers or even educators. Like we are like, oh, you're a teacher. But it's like, that's policy. That's policy work. Like they're the folk who are developing the curriculum and deciding if it includes information about how do we transition from fossil fuels or if it includes information that lifts up some of the problematic narratives of how we can just continue on this dinosaur economy. So I think we have to understand that for many reasons, people don't always show up in spaces or don't feel comfortable in spaces and don't identify with particular labels like activists or policy wonk, but that they still have important ideas and they should be included in the conversation because right now things are stagnant and we need a lot more creativity. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think with the policy space has been very consciously implemented is this idea of of elitism around policy. And that is what has excluded other stakeholders, especially those who are heavily impacted by the policies that are enacted. And the way traditional policymakers have promoted policy has kind of turned off the average person through the jargon, like you said. And I think what would be helpful to get more people involved is to start kind of like promoting this narrative of like, you're a policymaker, you're a policymaker, like Oprah, look under your chair, you're a policymaker, you know? Take the Oprah approach. (laughs) Totally. You you know what? I agree with you, but I think it's threatening to a lot of people because they don't want to share power. They don't want the culture of policy to change. And so that's very, what do you mean? Like make it accessible? No, this is only for people with certain types of knowledge and credentials. Like I have to be a lawyer to engage in policy or even me, I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley. I remember I wanted to take a class in the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley and I, I was there for a few sessions, but then I remember I felt so uncomfortable. I dropped out of the course because one, there were certain terms I had no knowledge of, which I know now, but like words like externalities. I've never taken an economics course in my life, but that doesn't mean I don't care about these issues. But it was like, when I admitted I didn't know what that word meant, I mean, you could have dropped a pin. Like, I mean, it was so silent and I felt so judged. So I self-selected out. And also I realized that most of the folk who were in public policy schools, you have to have taken micro and macroeconomics and most folk come from economic backgrounds. So that means that so many folk who are deciding our policies come from a very narrow and I would say flawed way of thinking about the world. Like a lot of folk who are trained in economics don't want their fundamental assumptions about like the goodness of markets to be questioned. So what does it mean when everyone has an economics degree who's in a public policy school? That's a problem. Indeed it is. Yeah. And I feel like maybe what would help is having policy translators to help along people who may be interested in being part of like decision-making teams, but feel intimidated by policymaking or feel like maybe that's not their place to be. Yeah, most definitely. I think we need translators. I think that's where science writers come in. I think they're really important. And also, like I said, artists, like, you have a policy document. It's like 20 to 100 pages of just like black and white text. I'll fall asleep trying to read that. But if I have pretty graphics and humor, funny quotes, 
Like it's so dry and people, and then they feel bad if they're not able to get through it. Like, no, you're normal. Why is success about equated with your ability to get through a dry piece of tech? Like, no, make it humorous, make it colorful, make it have some season and some soul. Like our policy doesn't have seasoning right now. And it's (laughs) annoying. (laughs) The last part of your comment was very thematic to Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) Need some soul and some spice. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like, come on. Like, it doesn't have to be. I mean, last, I guess a little anecdote. Like, I had a student when I was teaching at Tulane last year. I believe she was from Alabama. And I loved her. She was so Southern. Like, she had her accent. But she was unapologetically herself. And her presentations were the most entertaining and the most... I would say informative. She was brilliant. You know, she had her research, but it was also engaging. And I'm like, that's what we need. Like when it's not about making fun of people, it's not about stereotypes, but it's about just being engaging. And it doesn't have to be dry in order to be factual. (laughs) Right. We need to write a guide on how to be engaging. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are many of those, but it definitely needs to be the focus of the futurist policymaker. Through your journey, which it's been so colorful and you've had so many different types of interactions. And in a recent article, you talked about how as the only Black feminist environmental ethnographer in the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, you have, well, not in that particular situation, but through your professional and academic experiences, you have experienced micro and macroaggressions, which have led you to experiencing severe imposter syndrome, as well as anxiety and embarrassment. I have not heard very many professionals (laughs) be vulnerable and share the details of their insecurities. And I was wondering if I could drag you through that dark tunnel again (laughs) and share with us where you were coming from and what you've done to kind of take care of yourself through those moments of doubt. Yeah, of course. So I guess I come from a very straightforward family and I just have to be myself and I have to be honest about like what I go through. And yeah, imposter syndrome is so, it's just so common. And people have been writing, like there's like books or anthologies, like presumed incompetence. People have been writing about this phenomenon for decades. It's nothing new, but yet it's like everyone comes in thinking that they'll just be able to do their work and cut off all parts of their identity and their past experience. It's just not true. And we face a lot of trauma in these organizations, departments, spaces that were historically created to intentionally exclude our bodies and our knowledge. And so that's still going on. I've faced so much violence as a Black graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. That's how I became a student organizer and activist, if you want to say that. I've experienced it even like growing up, like I told you, my mom was always advocating for students. I would get rejected from gifted and talented programs. I would get rejected from even like the international baccalaureate program. And then I would graduate as valedictorian. So it's like my whole life is just a series of being 
rejected, presumed incompetent, and then having to overcome. But you get tired, you experience burnout. And that's when you have this chronic anxiety, this chronic fatigue, this chronic post-traumatic stress. So yeah, I'm just trying to be honest because I don't think that means that like I'm a victim and I can't do the work. It just means that I might have a little more anxiety than some other folks. Or we might all have a lot of anxiety and maybe we should be honest. Like there's reports about how graduate students have some of the worst mental health outcomes. And whenever someone, a person, anyone really, but definitely students of color enter graduate school, I first say to them, do you have a therapist or a spiritual community? You need to look into what our insurance is, what your copay is, because you need to have some support, emotional support, if you're going to make it through. When people break a leg, they go to a doctor. So many issues, we go to professionals. But when it comes to emotions and our mental health, where we sometimes where there's a stigma. So I'm just trying to destigmatize that because if we're going to survive, like I said earlier, we really have to like fortify our nerves. Yeah. I really appreciated that you shared that part of yourself because I have experienced much of that throughout my professional life. And I think I have felt shy to talk about it or ashamed to talk about it, afraid that I will be judged as weak or judged that my experiences were not valid or that I was just dreaming up things. (laughs) And I think for me, I'm still trying to process a lot of that hurt and that rejection. And it's not easy. I also do believe that a lot of people of color or many people of color have similar feelings and experiences, at least for what I've gathered so far. And like even in the articles and like journal articles, it is this common trend that a lot of people of color, especially like academics who are of color, face. And it's unfortunate that we don't necessarily have the spiritual, the mental support that we need. And honestly, I didn't really think to go to a therapist or anyone of, or like even a spiritual leader until much later when you're looking for answers and some articles like, have you thought about this? I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. I never did. (laughs) Yeah. And then when other friends or even family members recommended, it just seems less of a taboo. Not to say that it was a taboo with me, but it's really not something I thought about as a source of support for me. So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. So thank you very much. And I hope like we can have more of such conversations as we continue on with the podcast episodes here. Yeah, no, it's honestly, I'm very grateful to be able to share that. I was so surprised that article I wrote, how many times it's been shared. And I was like, oh, this really resonates with people. And it's like, and that's what, I mean, it's it's good, but it's also bad because I'm like, dang, we're all feeling it and feeling scared to talk about it. And it's the truth. And I feel like for me, my goal in life, I was talking to my former, well, my mentor, Carolyn Finney, who wrote Black Faces, White Spaces. And she's your mentor? Yeah. She You're was my, so lucky. <laughs> I know. Yeah she, awesome. was, um, yeah, she was my mentor when I came to Berkeley. And unfortunately, she was denied tenure. So that's been a whole... What? Other, yeah, that was a whole nother story. But basically, <laughs> but basically okay. my point is that when I, in my ongoing conversations with her, she talks about like freedom and like, what is your freedom worth? 
And if you're going to be free, that means you have to accept yourself fully, your vulnerabilities, and you have to get rid of these stigmas. And I remember being in her class. It was a really great class. Um, I think my first year at Berkeley. And there was a social worker student there who was, I guess, part of like a critical social work school. And she said that like, it's not that people are crazy or have mental health issues. It's not that they're sick. It's that the system is sick. So if a system is sick, it can only produce sick individuals. And so that takes away the stigma on the individual and puts it on the system. It's the white supremacist, patriarchal, colonial, like all of the different isms. That's what's sick. And people are coping the best way they know how. And so that really helped me in like reframing and destigmatizing mental health. But then the negativist in me thinks, oh my gosh, but the system, how do we undo this? Well, (laughs) I don't know. I had a mentor who said, it takes time for systems change. It doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen with like a tiny little grant. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. people like to give people grants and say, you're going to do systems change (laughs) with like $10,000. No, you're not. Yeah, here, take some money and do some research on imposter syndrome and graduates of color. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, so, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I do think change is possible. Like that's part of my eco-womanist beliefs part of my Afrofuturist practice. Like, I really do think change is possible. There's some feminists who write about how times of crisis are also times of opportunity. And so it's like, I'm reflecting on every day, there's so many terrible negative things happening and good things. So it's like, what am I going to focus on? What am I going to grow? What you give your attention to grows. So I'm going to grow a better future. Yeah. Well, that's really good advice. (laughs) (laughs) And that was one of the questions that I actually had for you is what advice would you give to other folks who are aspiring to pursue a career in the environmental space? Yeah, I would just reiterate mentorship and community. You have to be as a person of color, even not even just a person of color, like you just there's an article I read once about how environmentalists are some of the most depressed individuals yep. <laughs> because, and alcoholics because like we're studying like how the earth is dying or communities are dying. So you really have to be uh, conscientious about your emotional management and about a community of support because I have my bad days and I'm able to call on some of my friends and colleagues and they, you know, help me get my life together or like they inspire me. I always lift up my friends and their accomplishments because their accomplishments are my accomplishments. You don't want to be the token, but you want to saying lift as you climb. Yeah, that's a good one. So we're reaching close to the end of our conversation here. And that means we're getting into the lightning <laughs> round. And it's a series of four questions. <laughs> and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? So I just got this book by Dr. Sarah, I think, Jacquette Ray. It's called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. And so, yeah, I'm reading that because even as an educator, sometimes people are turned off because it's just so scary. So I'm reading about climate anxiety. That's something that I need to read on. (laughs) Desperately. (laughs) 
what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Personal habit. So a lot of people think I'm crazy, but I like wake up really <laughs> early. Like ever since I've been a teacher, I, I wake up between... Nowadays, I wake up at like 5.30 a.m., but sometimes I've had a lot of work to do, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. <laughs> because I find that like that's when I'm most productive and it's quiet. Mm. And also people work differently, but I kind of like music when I work. And so listening to gospel music has been helpful or like Atlanta trap music because there's a lot of positive messages or just like it has good energy. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've received? From my grandmother, she was like commenting on how serious I am and how reserved I can be sometimes. And she was like, you know, baby, all those things you worried about, they was going on before you was born and they'll be going on after you're dead. (laughs) So you don't need to take yourself so serious. You need to laugh. And I just think that was such good advice because humor will help us survive. Personalities are different, but it just reminds me to like smell the flat roses and to be humorous. Yeah, that's a good one. And it's so simple, but it takes a lot of effort to just stop and appreciate the simple things in life and just don't take yourself so seriously and just laugh. What is your superpower? Superpower. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Right now, I feel like it's overcoming adversity, but that's not what I actually want to say. I would say it is planting seeds in people, helping people, encouraging people to step into their greatness and also connecting people. I'm really good at building relationships or networking, if that's what you want to call it. Mm, Yeah, that's a good one. All right. So how can we follow you on your journey? Oh, wow. So right now, like I would say in terms of social media, I'm working on my website. It's still in construction, but it's blackandgreenphd.org, I want to say. And also on Facebook and Twitter, I'm at blackandgreenphd. And I have websites for like my school. So yeah, if you Google my name, I come up and hopefully I'll be writing a book in the future. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> I will purchase it. Yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see not the conclusion, but just what you've learned and how you think we can make things better. All right. So is there anything else you would like to add before we end our session here? Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. It's always great to have conversation with like-minded individuals and just trust Black women, trust Indigenous women. (laughs) That's all you need to know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories and your voices helping add to the strength of the movement that we're trying to create here. So I'm grateful for you and thank you. Of course, thank you. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. 
You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.